and the books were opened. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the sermon of Sunday, September 12, 2021, from Christchurch, Jerusalem. As the Day of Atonement approaches, religious Jews around the world will exchange the greeting, Gamar Hatimatova, may your name be inscribed, that is, may your name be written and sealed in the Book of Life. In the Hebrew calendar, we are currently in the days of awe, a time of reflection, repentance, and making amends before the great fast day of Yom Kippur. The purpose of this period is not unlike that of Christian Lent, but the intensity and the outcome are very different. Jewish people hope for a year of blessing if their repentance has been adequate and accepted. Disciples of Jesus understand repentance, coupled with spiritual maturity, to be the way of life that leads to eternal life in the presence of the Lord. Canon Daryl Fenton discusses the great difficulty people today have with spiritual judgment and accountability and explores the practical ways the Apostle James offers to ensure one's name is inscribed. Our first reading comes from the writer of Proverbs inspired by the Holy Spirit, chapter 1, beginning at verse 20. Out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out. At the city gate, she makes her speech. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Repent at my rebuke. Then I will pour out my thoughts to you. I'll make known to you my teachings. But since you refuse to listen when I call, and no one pays attention when I stretch out my hand, since you disregard all my advice and do not accept my rebuke, I, in turn, will laugh when disaster strikes you. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke, They will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. This is the word of the Lord. As I think most of you know, The Psalter, the Psalms, were originally Israel's hymn book. So we've asked our music team tonight to bring us in song our Psalm, Psalm 19.
James chapter 1, starting with verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love, those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Our gospel portion is from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 8. Please stand as we honor the King, as we hear the Messiah teach us. Good news according to Mark. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, to yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we know <clears throat> that unless you speak to us, the words are spoken with futility. We also know that because we've gathered in your name, uh, most of us are your disciples, whether here or around the world, that you've taken up residence in us by your Holy Spirit, and that when we gather, it's, it's as though your temple were rebuilt for you to dwell in. And so we beg you tonight, pour out your Spirit so that the words we read and hear are rich with the illumination that only your Spirit can give. Quicken our hearts to respond and strengthen our wills to obey, we pray. In the name of the Messiah, Jesus, who made it possible for all these things to be so. Amen. If you were out on the streets of Jerusalem this week among observant Jewish people, you might receive a greeting like, May your name be inscribed. And along with that is in the Book of Life. This idea of the Book of Life 
is an ancient one. It appears most clearly in the Hebrew Bible in Psalm 69, verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. That's in some ways just the beginning because it appears in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 3, Jeremiah 17, Malachi 3, Job 13. The New Testament develops the theme even further. Luke 10, Philippians 4, Hebrews 12, and most fully in the Apocalypse of John, what we often call the book of Revelation. And John puts kind of the fullest development of this idea of the book of life before us when he writes in chapter 20, beginning at the 11th verse, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the death that were in that dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Whether that is a picture from a vision or exactly what will happen at the end of time, there's no getting around the clarity of the statement that all human beings will be held accountable and will stand before Jesus at the end of time to give an account. People who ask forgiveness for their sin and selfishness and have put their trust in Jesus and have been reconciled to God through him, they are, as Scripture says, saved. Saved to become God's people, citizens of his kingdom, Their names are in the book of life. And for those who've rejected him on that same day, they'll hear that their wish to be far apart from him will be honored forever and ever. For disciples, however, scriptures teach us that there's another kind of reckoning. 2 Corinthians 5.10 refers to it. It teaches that for the saved, there is a second accounting, a record of our relationship with God after we accept Jesus. Put another way, from the days of the Exodus, the Lord has said he desires to live among his people. He is holy, and he taught that he can only live among holy people. The Torah, the prophets, the apostles, all agree that the pursuit of a holy life is how we learn to love God. It's how he becomes more and more present among us. As our brother David Pelagi often reminds us, there's a proportional relationship between the holiness of God's people and how fully they experience his presence. Personal holiness, however, does not bring us salvation. Let's be clear. Holiness makes our life with God more intimate, more rich, more real. 
but it's still a very serious business, as Ezekiel reminds us, because the presence of the Lord can depart his people if they refuse to be holy. Holiness comes in two parts, you may recall. Part one is our identity as God's people, like the Jewish people. We belong to the Lord because he saved us through Jesus the Messiah. But then there's part two. That identity is expressed. We see it. It is shown in the way we live. Sometimes we call it ethics, sometimes spiritual maturity, but it makes us look more and more like Jesus. Our readings today from the Apostle James are clearly about holiness. Most of you know that James was the leader of the church here in Jerusalem, its first leader, the brother of Jesus, steeped in the teachings of Scripture and Jewish life. And he understood this principle extremely well. In fact, I think in the words that we heard read from his epistle, from his letter, he lays out for us three principles of holiness and then later goes on in the rest of the letter to give details about what it looks like. There's one piece of background, though, we have to remember, and that James wrote to the people of God, the followers of Jesus, spread all around the Mediterranean basin, the diaspora, as it's often called. And for the first time in their experience as followers of Jesus, persecution had begun to fall upon them and discrimination. And times were hard, and it appears from what James writes that they weren't handling it so well. And so he begins with three principles in chapter 1 that he later goes on to flesh out in the rest of the, uh, rest of the letter. The first one is the need for tests and trials by God. <clears throat> the second is for wisdom, why we need to seek it. And third, the kind of things that keep us from being holy. So, verses 2 to 4. James writes, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, I'm, I'm all for perseverance, but this idea of joy in trial and joy in testing, well, it doesn't sound so good to me. Of course, that doesn't matter. What James is saying is that the Lord wants his people to be faithful, not fickle. Spiritually steady, trusting him so that he can stay close. It may be the most practical definition of faith we have. You know, we tend to look at faith as a feeling or an idea. But in fact, faith is demonstrated by keeping on, keeping on with the Lord, not giving up. And I think that due to inadequate preaching and teaching on the part of people like me, Many believers now resent this idea of trial and testing by the Lord for the sake of their perseverance in the faith. You'll hear words like, I didn't sign up for this, or indignantly perhaps, I'm saved by grace. It's not about my behavior. It's about Jesus' grace. That's true. 
But there's no mystery here. We heard it in the gospel. We deny self, we follow Jesus, and what do we receive now? We receive a cross. That's part of holiness, because it's the cross and the trials and the temptations that will make us stronger and stronger so that we can indeed live a holy life. How else can we survive in the midst of the chaos and the evil and the balagan that's all around us? And why is it necessary? Verse 4, James tells us, so that we might be perfect and complete. What does it look like? Well, disciples don't moan and complain at every difficulty, blaming the Lord. They persevere. They don't resent difficulties in discipline because they understand it's what will make them into transformed creatures from what they were, selfish, to what God wants them to become, loving, more like Jesus. You've probably already figured out from a life with him that comfort and convenience don't have a very big part in Jesus' vocabulary. To use a contemporary kind of American phrase, life is boot camp. It's all about getting ready for what's required of us in the future, a life of eternity with the God who created us all, living the good life he intended for us to live because he's changed us and made us a holy people. This specific of holiness is more attitude than action, this idea of accepting trial and testing. Yes, it should make it happy. Yes, make, make it happy. It should make us happy, James says. And you know, it's a truth that every athlete and every soldier understands. You don't get stronger or faster or shoot better unless you have practice. I have friends in Myanmar today who I was in touch with this week, whose pastor friends have died of COVID, whose government is oppressing them and who can't even get money out of the bank to buy food, so they're bartering. Now, that's a trial and a test. But when I look around the church, especially the Western church, we don't seem to have much tolerance for this kind of trial. In fact, we kind of remind me of my youngest grandchild, my granddaughter, Alana. Sandy, my wife, and I, about four years ago, were in Virginia where they live, and we were helping out babysitting. Uh, the day before that Sandy was babysitting with the kids, brother and sister, their father had taken care of them. And when we'd got back from shopping, their rooms were clean. They were the model of politeness. They weren't fighting with each other. And whatever their dad asked them to do, they did immediately. So next day, Sandy was looking forward to being with them, but they demolished their rooms in the first hour. They were punching each other. Everything she asked them to stop, they didn't. And finally, in exasperation, she sat them down in the living room and said, okay, guys, what's, what's, what's with this? Yesterday I was here, you were wonderful kids, and you were obedient, and you did whatever was asked. And today you're ignoring me, you're doing nothing that's asked, and you know that's not right. And six-year-old Alana rose to her feet and said, Nina, that's Sandy's name to our grandkids, Nina, it's like this. 
dad will take away our privileges if we disobey him. So we call him public enemy number one. You have a choice, Nina. We can call you public enemy number two and we'll obey you. Or you can have us love you, but we won't obey you. In some ways, it reminds me of how we Western believers behave. We love to come and sing songs of praise and tell the Lord how much we love him, but we don't really like to obey him. To do that really is wasting our time, and it's probably insulting to him. The second principle that James raises is in verses 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Real disciples need wisdom, and wisdom is a word that's fallen out of favor, at least in English. It's not about being smart particularly. It's about being discerning. It's about understanding that God made a way for people to live that is the very best for them, and if they discern and obey and listen and reflect on him and his word, that wisdom will be given to them. It's not, by the way, what the world calls wisdom. Proverbs that we heard today probably gives us some insights that will be helpful about exactly what it is. In uh, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22, the proverb writer rejects scoffers and fools. A scoffer, that's a funny old word too. It means people who use sarcasm like a weapon on their friends, or who are always cynical and cute. People who advocate for hopelessness because nothing can actually really be done. Uh, or fools, fools who really don't know what works in a spiritual world. It's sort of like us when we spend all evening watching a video and we get up the next morning and we can't remember the plot. It's not that we can't ever get away from reality. It's not that we can't ever have fun. But when we spend our life on diversions that keep us from knowing the Lord better, and we do it most of the time, we end up with a worldview that comes from our smartphones and from social media. A worldview whose values conflict with the Lord's that are not wise and ultimately are foolish because they contradict his word. What does wisdom require? We just say no. In verse 23, turn at my reproof. My goodness, that's old-fashioned. Teshuva in Hebrew. The turning is about changing our behavior. It's not about wallowing in guilt or self-condemnation. Yes, it involves confession and authentic repentance, but it's what, that's what enables us to turn with the help of God's Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit uses guilt as a tool. It's not his hobby. And the clear implication is that wisdom calls for a change of behavior that makes us look and sound more and more like Jesus every day of our spiritual lives. Without excuses, 
certainly with his help, but not with excuses. Wisdom is also what's talked about in verse 24 of Proverbs 1. Disciples who pay attention, the old word is heed, pay attention to what the Lord says, who do what he says, that's this book here, who do what he says, we have to know it and we have to do it. Like, for instance, it's time to memorize Scripture so we're equipped in a world that's against us and against what we believe to inform them of the alternative. It means knowing our Bibles so well that it shapes our thinking and our feeling and that it, with the help of the Spirit, continues to change our behavior. It means, it means choosing for God and for His Word and against something else. There is no universal acceptance. And the psalmist adds, speaking on God's behalf, I've stretched out my hand and no one heeded. Look around us. There's war, invasions, brutal evil, famine, pestilence, and death. It's as though the Lord has released the four horsemen of the apocalypse in our world now. And we're not holy enough to be wise. What do we do? We blame the people of the world for its troubles. The Lord says, If my people, who, work, will, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, repent, I will heal them. It isn't about what a skeptic like Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, has done. It's not trying to get the attention of Antifa or the squad, if you're from America. Nor is it about what the white supremacists have done in God's economy. No, it's about his people, his church, his disciples who do not want to live holy lives in the midst of an unholy world so that they can be salt and light. I think we all know how it works. Because we, the followers of Jesus, his disciples, are holy, his presence is in the world. There is more peace than there would be, and the gospel can be heard. When we are unholy, chaos overtakes us, and the gospel is drowned out. What do we do with this? In one sense, we don't do anything. Our hearts and our minds need to change. We need to reclaim wisdom. We need to have an urgency about pleasing the Lord before anything else, thinking like he thinks, pursuing righteousness more than safety, compassion more than convenience, obedience more than comfort. That's wisdom. That's what will actually produce God's best for us. The third principle, uh, verses 9 to 11 of James, where he talks about, you know, the, the poor exalting in, in their poverty and the rich exalting in their humiliation, it seems almost like not a principle, but I'm confident that it is. I'm confident that James is talking about the difference between the temporary, the temporal, and the eternal. 
Poverty and wealth, you know, are relative to our culture that we live in and to our country. James clearly considers wealth to be dangerous, that it can squeeze God out of our lives. That's the principle that money illustrates. But the real principle is that we deceive ourselves and let other things, as the song we heard tonight, become idols of the world. Let me see if I can illustrate. When good health and fitness, or the opposite, the fear of death, a fear of death or sickness, or looking old, they consume more time than pursuing spiritual growth or spiritual fitness, the temporary becomes more important than the eternal. That's not holy. Or maybe we see ourselves as intellectually clever, smarter than other people. If that defines what we think is most important, we've chosen the kind of pride the Lord rejects, and he's not impressed. James' illustration is really universal when it comes to things like money. Because you see, we like to deceive ourselves that it gives us the most safety of all. It will secure our retirement. It will make people love us, though any rich person knows that love is only as deep as their pockets. It will make people admire us and think we're, we're competent. But that's self-deceit because we all know that like any number of people who didn't expect to contract COVID now have already departed this earth. There's no safety outside of the Lord. It's true, money can temporarily reduce our anxiety, but so can cocaine. There's no real safety there. There's a self-help book published about 20 years ago entitled The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It made a big impression on a young man like me who was striving to be a success. Until I got to the chapter that was called Begin with the End in Mind. And the author told the story, probably fictional, about two business leaders who, uh, who went to the wake. Now, I come from Chicago. In Chicago, we use the Irish word wake for doing a visitation to a family who are mourning, and usually the body is present in the room. And you go and you make your condolences to the family, and then you go sit or stand in the back and you talk to other people. Well, these two associates of the person who had died, they were standing and talking in the back. And the one said to the other, how much did he leave? And his colleague replied, all of it. This third principle of holiness is keeping God's perspective about what things will pass away and what things are eternal. I could continue with a list of illustrations, and some would be funny, and some might speak to you more definitely. And yet I simply must, I must ask you if you want to be holy or not. Do you want more of God's presence? There's only one way to get it. You know, James has done a good job of laying out the principles for us. We have to be ready to be tried. We have to be tested or we can't grow in the Lord and we cannot become more like him. And, and secondly, we have to be willing to seek wisdom, God's wisdom, spiritual wisdom, wisdom that transforms us so that we find 
the good life that the Lord intended for those who belong to him. And thirdly, it's not those things that are temporary. It's not those things that speak to us from our cell phones. It's not our identity as part of a political party. It's not our identity as some particular church we go to. It's not our identity or our opposite thereof. It's not worrying about whether we aren't pretty enough. God doesn't care. It's not worrying about whether we're not uh, skinny enough. God doesn't care. He doesn't really care whether we're a preacher or a street sweeper. What he cares about is if his presence is in us and as a community of believers is among us and that only comes when we're committed to obeying him and to growing and to changing to become like his son. That's the decision that we must make before destruction fully overtakes us so that we can declare in this land and every others that the gospel is real and if you didn't know it, you can look at our lives and see how we've been transformed to becoming holy when we were unholy, righteous when we were unrighteous, loving when we were selfish. So, is your name written in the book of life? If it is, that's great. Does it mean that you're becoming more and more holy each day until you and I meet him face to face? I hope so, because you know, right at the end of this little dissertation, James says so clearly that those of us who persevere in holiness will be given what? The crown of life. Heavenly Father, grant us your grace, your mercy, and your spirit, that having redeemed us, we now give you permission to make us like you, a holy people among whose presence your among whom your presence can grow and grow, making our lives richer and more intimate with you, and transforming us for that day when we meet you face to face, so that you may say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.